Namaste and greetings from the World Health Organization. I want to make the case to you that we are shying away from sexuality education. There is considerable evidence from around the world that sexuality education does not harm children and adolescents and it can do a lot of good. Can a girl tell a boy that she finds him attractive and would like to go out with him or is that only for boys to do? In fact, there is no evidence of this. Studies from around the world in different cultures points to the fact that sexuality education does not lead to early or increased sexual activity. Hi, this is Karin Weiss and welcome to the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast. And today we talk with Chandra Muli about adolescent sexual and reproductive health and rights. Chandra works at the World Health Organization's Department for Sexual and Reproductive Health and Research. His work includes building the epidemiologic and evidence base and supporting countries to translate this evidence into action through policies and programs. Hi Chandra, it's an honor for me to have you on this podcast, Health for All. You are for many people evoking evidence on sexual and reproductive health and rights for young people. Welcome to this episode. Thank you, Karin, and it's a pleasure to work with you again. Chandra, for those who may not know you when listening to this podcast, why are you so passionate about young people's sexual and reproductive health and rights, in particular about comprehensive sexuality education? I'm passionate about everything I do. Passionate about uh, adolescent health and adolescent sexual and reproductive health. This is not just about meeting um, the need at that point in time, for example, you know, providing someone with uh, uh, contraceptives or improving access to antenatal care. This is um, a handle that you have to change the person's life. And you also, it, it also is a handle to challenge and change um, uh, norms and practices in communities. And this is really a, a very important entry point to do these things because um, it's it's a turning point in life and it's such difficult life phase in the perception of many families, communities and societies. So this is uh, clearly an area where you begin to see uh, the inequalities. This is where you begin to see trajectories for girls going down, trajectories for boys going up. Um, and, and, and that's why. And of course, working with young people is also exciting because you're not, you're not just giving, you're just getting so much more every time you give. How did you experience sexuality education when you were young? See, I grew up in India in a, you know, middle class family, a loving, caring family. Uh, my father was a chartered accountant. My mother, who's 91 and still alive, you know, so a well-educated family, uh, and, and they cared for us. You know, we got love, we got support. My parents often told us that, um, they, they didn't have a lot of money to give us. And what they had to give us was, uh, the wealth they had to give us was education. So, you know, my parents invested in our education, wanted us to do well. And we all have done well. All my siblings and I have all done well. Now, my parents, like many other parents um, in, in India at that time, 
And I think that's largely unchanged, although change is beginning to happen. Never talk to us about sex or about reproduction. So I learned about sex in the sidelines of the school playground when I was 13 from a classmate. And um, uh, I don't recall very much about the conversation. I just uh, could not relate what I was being told to my parents. Um, and, you know, growing up in India, it's not a very, um, uh, at that time, you know, in the in the 60s, uh, my parents never hugged, they never sat with each other and uh, you know, gave each other a kiss. I know they respected each other and never grew up with conflict in my, in my, um, home, fam- parents' home. Never saw conflict. Though my mother was a strong woman and, you know, she put her foot down. Still remember the face of my biology teacher where, you know, she said uh, to us, you know, humming and hawing for many, many minutes and then saying, don't worry, this uh, chapter will not, um, be, uh, you'll not have questions about this chapter in the exam. Was it confusing for you? Uh, yeah, it's, it was confusing for us. But, you know, when you're immersed in a culture and you grow up in that culture, you, you don't see things differently. You know, you don't, when you grow up in a country where there are beggars, you accept beggars as the norm. When you grow up in a country where women are treated with disrespect, uh, that's the norm. You don't n- know what is different outside. Remember, when I was growing up, there was no television. The only window to the world was something that we saw uh, in when I was in university, would go and see a Hollywood movie uh, once a month. It would be a, you know, Charles Bronson movie or a Clint Eastwood movie, completely um, different from our reality. So you just accepted what you, what it was. But what, what was strange was you had, um, um, Advertisements for these movies, um, and there was rape scenes. So, you know, you could have a rape scene, but you couldn't have hand holding and kissing. And so it's very uh, strange to have this huge discomfort to, to discuss about sex. But, you know, we are 1.3 billion people. So, you know, we're having huge amounts of sex if you're going to have 1.3 billion people. so many misconceptions with regards to sexuality education. Are young people who are informed about their sexuality and its consequences more promiscuous? First of all, I don't like to use the word promiscuous. You know, uh, promiscuous is a value-laden term. It means that, you know, somebody is uh, doing something that they should not. Um, um, But the uh, answer to your question is, do uh, young people who have access to children and adolescents who have access to sexuality education, are they more likely to have sex early? Are they more likely to have more um, um, unprotected sex? Uh, are they more likely to have multiple partners? And the answer is no. The evidence from many countries, in many cultures, by many different researchers, uh, points to the fact that uh, sexuality education does not lead to early or more risky or to increased 
um, sexual activity. Uh, that's a common misconception. And I think men, in many places, parents are hugely worried about, you know, taking an innocent child and then corrupting the influence of the child and putting ideas in the child's mind that the child never had. That's a very common misconception. And it's widespread. It's widespread in so many places. Even in Europe, you know, I've lived in Switzerland now for more than 25 years. And I often um, in dinner table conversations, of course, not in 2020, but in dinner table conversations, you often get asked, you know, when should we start? You know, what's the right age to start? You know, is, isn't this too early? Uh, is it bad to talk about these things early? And so what is the appropriate age is, is the question. And so the answer to that, my standard answer to that is, you know, as soon as the child is born, you know, you can start talking about and sexuality education is not just about putting, you know, teaching people how to put condoms on penises. You know, it's about so many other things about how boys and girls bodies are different, how some children are born who are intersex, how um, uh, um, how uh, different doesn't mean better or worse or higher or lower. Um, you know, I have a colleague in, in India who started teaching her son about menstrual periods, saying, you know, this is the time of the month when mommy is not very well. You, um, and so you can start talking about it in, in very different ways. You don't need to frighten a child or confuse a child. In your talks, you mentioned several times that the world has changed in many ways, but little in terms of sexuality education for young people. And that we are actually failing this group at home, in school, and in the community. Why did you say that? You know, um, growing up, as I said to you, uh, I had no access to uh, sexuality education in school or, or in uh, at home. And in the community, like I told you, um, you didn't see, um, uh, you know, loving, respectful. Um, gestures. Uh, we saw in India, even in the India that I was growing up in, it's worsened enormously now, sexual harassment on the street. In India, we call it Eve teasing. So, you know, um, uh, teasing girls when they're waiting for a bus or, you know, um, falling on them in a crowded bus. Um, so we saw that. And as I said to you, we saw these posters, you know, announcing this um, rape scene or you see a movie where the heroine gets wet and so you see her body shape, but you can't, it's all not normal, not normal conversations. It's all warped uh, discussion on sexuality. And sadly, that is true for most young people of the world today. Uh, you know, we talk about, uh, implicitly in this, we're talking about low and middle income countries. The issue is there are still huge barriers to the delivery of sexuality education in most countries, rich or poor, you know, northern or southern. You know, there are still many Catholic schools in Ireland which don't permit sexuality education. But we don't talk about that. We talk about Uganda and we talk about Pakistan and we talk about Bolivia. And we have to talk about the reality in many places.
So you, you have access now to pornography, which you did not have in the past. So that's the problem. You have the misinformation. So in a, in a way, we are failing young people in a big way. Do you see pornography as a danger to the well-being of young people today? So, you know, this is, of course, an area that I'm interested in as an adolescent health professional. I read the literature. I read the studies on that. And, and of course, the, study, the, the results on this are mixed. You know, some studies suggest that sexuality education is, is all bad and it has negative influences. Others uh, suggest that this might be um, uh, a useful and an interesting way of providing some some education. Well, what is very clear is that, you know, uh, uh, pornography, which um, uh, reinforces um, gender inequal norms, and the status of girls as objects and as objects uh, to be used and to be abused, um, uh, reinforces what many people see on the street and see in their homes. Um, uh, and I, and I think, you know, um, what you want, uh, young people to grow up with is to identify and relate to each other, uh, both as sexual beings, but both also as non-sexual beings, you know, to be able to have uh, a friendly relationship with a neighbor, a colleague, a friend, a classmate without, um, uh, sexual undertones or overtones. Um, as well as to have um, um, uh, sexual interactions with others, and so if everything, if the if the only um, framing um, uh, in a young person who watches several hours of pornography is this, then it it is bad. You know, for me the the point is good and bad is uh, people said that about television. You know, they said that about movies. They said that about. Um, Games. We now know that gaming, some forms of gaming are not bad at all. They're helping young people, children develop networks. Um, uh, and so I, so that's my answer to your question. It's not black and white. Do we need to change our way of thinking and way of designing comprehensive sexuality education today? I think, um, we need to do more of it. Um, we need to do more of it. Uh, even if you're not very good at it. See, uh, in Switzerland, you have to do pass a test to have a dog in your home. We have a pet dog. We all had to do a little course. Uh, it's changed now, laws changed, but a little dog, you know, and we all had to get a... You don't have a law... Uh, to any test to do to become a parent. So my sense is you don't need to wait for to do the perfect sexuality education. Uh, I think parents should do it. Teachers should do it. Community members in community fora, for example, a scouts group or a football camp um, should talk about these issues. My daughter has epilepsy. She's 12 years old. She goes to uh, camp with uh, with children in her in her group where they do equitherapy and they have discussions about how are you managing your periods and you know what are you doing with your periods and and those are the kinds of discussions that should be normal so i so i there are of course we know good ways and bad ways of doing sexuality education 
But if everyone waits to get perfect before they start doing it, I think that's not the solution. And how can we lift the taboos and the social stigma around sexuality education? I think um, by having people um, uh, who are influential, people who are visible, uh, talk about this. Now, I, I'm 62 years old. You know, when I was 30 years old, I went to London uh, to do my master's degree in public health. Um, and uh, I, I watched um, a chat show with an 80-year-old woman talking to somebody about the fact that she had been sexually abused. Uh, and I, I was wondering to myself, why is this woman talking about her father and bringing a father's name to disrepute? Why, why is she doing this? Uh, over time, I've realized that you need to talk about these issues and you need to talk about these issues to put this on the table. Only yesterday, I heard a report that one in 10 children in France, in modern 21st century France, have sexual abuse in the family. Uh, but it's only now that we're beginning to talk about these issues. And I think the only way to legitimize these issues and normalize these issues is by influential people talking about them. And so ordinary people talking about them, you know, you have this Roget's theory of diffusion of innovations. So you have the early innovators, and the early innovators are generally considered crazies, you know, we can't follow them. But the late innovators are people like us. And I think once people see people like us doing these things, others will do them too. So that's why the Swiss system is a wonderful system. It normalizes it. It starts very early. It's incremental. It educates parents that they're going to, you know, uh, uh, when my son was in school, we had a briefing session every time before they would have a session in class telling us that, you know, this is what we're going to talk about. We encourage you to let your children participate in it. You are, you have the right to withdraw the child, but we strongly discourage it. Um, and that's how you normalize it. And so it's persistence. It's using um, influential people and institutions and being patient. What do you think about the current pandemic? Has the COVID-19 pandemic put us back on the agenda on comprehensive sexuality education? You know, um, I, 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 I'm an optimist. I try to see things, uh, a glass is half full rather than half empty. Clearly, the fact that so many children in so many places are not in school is a huge problem. You know, one of the great achievements, perhaps the single greatest achievement of the Millennium Development Goals was the huge increases in primary school enrollment. Um, and, you know, getting kids into school means you can talk about all these issues. And in many countries, however flawed they are, sexuality education programs have been in place um, or are getting into place. You know, they're not perfect. They are very limited. They are abstinence only in many places. But they are there. there. It's happened, beginning to happen. <coughs> That's all been <laughs> affected. You know, if they've been remote learning on maths or social studies or science, um, I don't think so much of that has happened in sexuality education. I read a lot of reports of digital health 
Um, and I think that's important, but I'm not so sure how many people outside the big cities and even the medium-sized cities uh, receive uh, this. That doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean it's not useful. But um, uh, I, I, I certainly see that digital health has um, broken some taboos, you know, um, shown that these things can be done. But, you know, without a doubt, um, COVID-19 has hugely affected access of many young people to education, including uh, sexuality education. And like I did, you know, many young people learn from friends. They learn from friends. They learn from classmates. They learn from, uh, you know, a kind teacher. You know, all of us can close our eyes and think of that one teacher who believed in us and who advised us and all those avenues are stopped, which is such a tragedy, such a tragedy. If you had all the means and everything would be possible, what would you do for young people? So what would I do for young people? <clears throat> um, what I would do for young people is firstly, I would recognize that many generations of young people will come. So what I want to do <clears throat> must be sustainable. There's no point in doing something and um, um, going away. Of course, there are urgent issues, you know, urgent issues in humanitarian settings, urgent issues where uh, lesbians, gay, bisexuals, transsexuals, um, intersex are, are persecuted. Um, um, uh, so there are, there are urgent issues. I would keep some money for firefighting, for responding to urgent needs. Um, but what I would like to do is to um, uh, strengthen systems. You know, I like what Tedros, our director general, is doing when he talks about universal health coverage. We need government systems that work, that respond to the needs of all populations, including young people. So I would um, work in investing in systems, you know, both to gather and use information and to provide a range of services. But what I would invest in a lot, um, uh, a good share of the money is building movements. Um, over 10 years, over 15 years, you build communities of people who believe in this issue, who care about this issue, who will fight for this issue, and who will fight for the allocation of national resources for this issue and not wait for donor funding. What we've seen with COVID, you know, Tedros yesterday, uh, made this remark that we are at the brink of a catastrophic moral failure uh, when most of the COVID vaccine is going to the rich countries of the world. Um, and, you know, that should not happen if people in the poorer countries of the world uh, identify these kinds of issues as priorities and, you know, use their resources for this. Um, instead of buying arms and armaments and storing their money in banks abroad, you know. Um, so for me, I think while we talk about good governance and good services, you also need uh, good uh, good movements. Uh, you know, take an example of Rwanda. Rwanda has achieved so much in so many respects. But in terms of adolescent sexual and reproductive health, 
relatively little. So just because you have a strong government and you have strong governance and good systems and health insurance systems and you know, reduced maternal mortality doesn't mean adolescents benefit. It, adolescents will benefit if they are on the agenda of the government and of people's movements where governments cannot ignore them. Thank you so much, Chanda, for being my guest at the Medicus Mundi Health for All podcast today. Thank you, Karen. It was a pleasure to talk to you, a pleasure to work with you and your great team at MMS. You listen to the Medicus Mundi Health for All podcast with Karin Weiss. You can visit our website and leave a comment and engage in a discussion. All episodes are on our website, on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Please spread the message, share and like it. The next episode is round the corner and we talk about how to create a safe space for young people and how women who stand up for their beliefs can change a society.